0: Hey, what's up? Welcome to the first episode of Research and Review, where we have the opportunity to discuss a research paper with one of the scientists who wrote it. We will spend some time getting to know the researcher and their thought process to better understand the research field and techniques associated with it. Our first guest received his PhD in population evolutionary genetics at Queen's University Belfast in 2003. He then went on to work as a research fellow at the Department of Agriculture, then at Queen's before his role as a senior lecturer currently at the University of Dundee. He is well known for his work in scientific communication, including BBC Northern Ireland's great unanswered questions, and most importantly, known as the biggest
1: competition on the hit series Beauty and the Geek UK. Welcome, Dr. David Booth. If it's any consolation, I think you were robbed. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know,
2: I think it would have worse if I, had t- if I had been in it for more than two weeks.
0: Yeah. I think it would be worse that, that I didn't. How did you uh, get into it, did you, were you called or did you send an application in? Um, so in 2006 I was finishing a postdoc on Invasive Species mm-hmm. uh, I was in a lab with a bunch of really decent folk and
1: Nesta, which is the National Endowment for Science, Technology and Art, were running a competition to find the next David Attenborough and uh, they called it Fame Lab. and a bunch of uh, my friends
2: said that I would probably... i like to talk nonsense i would probably be pretty good at it so they volunteered me for it and i went down one saturday and i won the regional competition just off the cuff wow and yeah yeah so then they uh, sent me off to london to get trained how to do science communication and i got to meet like the people that worked on rough science and got to meet a bunch of the people in the natural history museum Wow! and um, then we had the national competition and i came like runner-up in that Um, but just doing that one thing gave me like contacts. So people would phone me up and ask me to do shows and do talks and things. So I did a show with Christine Bleakley and Eamon Holmes. Oh, really? Then obviously it was great answer questions, but that came like way afterwards. And, but what would, what would be happening was, is people would, you know, offer me money to do things (laughs) and I would just say, yes, I'll do it. Absolutely. (laughs) Because I I like doing things and I also liked having money and uh, uh, they came to me with this thing and they said it's uh, it's like Krypton Factor didn't really investigate this too this sounds great and then when they got us to it and uh, it was like day two or day three I was like really suspicious about what was going on and I spoke to one of the producers and then they told me what the show was it was like it's Beauty and the Geek and I was like I don't know about this and then they reminded me that they were you know were, yeah, you, you're, getting, you're getting money for this here and yeah, yeah, so whenever I got back from it, um, I phoned up one of the mentors and said, I think I've just made a horrible mistake, and they said, um, there's no mistakes,
0: any any publicity is good publicity. Absolutely. So the sure show went on, and then I think uh, I think off the back of that, I got the great answer questions thing, which was really, uh, it was, it's just one thing happens after the other, there's yeah. no rhyme or reason to it, but I'm shocked that people still give a shit about it, like, people still
2: watch that nonsense it's just the worst it's trash and then put like this everyone will make this mistake in life <laughs> it's just that i happen to have made the mistake and everyone knows about it you could see it on youtube yeah so, um, uh yeah so any advice to people in the future about mistakes like that just don't you, you can't care too much you can't get too precious or yeah and, um, like I, I think some people think i get bothered by it but um
0: it doesn't bother me at all. So whenever that was all done, I kind of came over to Dundee because they wanted an evolutionary biologist. Um, and so I kept doing TV and radio work back in Northern Ireland. And they have been doing a radio show off and on over there called What's Next, which is a bit like um, like science journalism type stuff. Mm-hmm. So before your, um, for your claim to fame, uh, your background is in genetics. So how did you get into that area?
2: I, I always knew I wanted to do biology. So whenever I was very young, I was really into dinosaurs. Moving into uh, secondary school, like grammar school, I was—we uh, lived in a house that was quite close to the
1: the, the hill. Mm-hmm. So it's, you'd spend your days like walking around the hills and looking at frog spawn and sticklebacks and poking at dead badger carcasses. <laughs> you know, there's, there's just always something interesting in the natural world. Yeah. And so at school, I was always very good at biology. Like, uh, more so than
2: any other subject I ever studied. And so it was just, like, logical to go to university and just learn about it a bit more. And then when I was at uni, um, I wasn't even sure what I wanted to do in biology, but we had, like, this nice curriculum where you could do a bit of everything and then you pick for your second year and that's what you specialize in. And so was just something about genetics it was so logical. Like, it was one of those subjects where you just pick it up and it's not hard. Like, everything else is difficult difficult just, i just knew that i had like a sort of an infinity to it and yeah just one thing led from the other and i ended up doing population and evolutionary genetics and uh, yeah i haven't looked back it's the best find that thing that you're really into and make sure you find a way to make your job the thing that you like doing
0: that's that's a very um, good idea yeah That's <laughs> fantastic so we'll move on to the main body which is uh, we've I've selected one of your papers and we're just going to spend some time to work through it and discuss some of the techniques and ideas behind it. So the one for today is Nature Connection, Early Childhood, a Quantitative Cross-Sectional Study, which is authored by yourself and Dr. Barrable from the Dundee uh, Department of Education and Social Work. They're not two departments you'd think would automatically cross over. So how did you um, decide well, to... Nice
2: life science and education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it helps to be, it helps to be friend like, so students frequently report that I'm intimidating and aggressive. <laughs> I'm actually not intimidating or aggressive. I'm, I think I'm quite, I'm a very liberal, civilized chap and um, I'm always happy to help people with things and especially when it comes to experiments and s- statistics. I know um, in our discipline and in other disciplines, people get intimidated and scared by these things and they often need like hand, their hand held a little bit or they need someone to chat with or someone just to, you know, bounce ideas off. And so I was involved in a couple of projects and then some, one of my colleagues said, you know, there's a person who might want, you know, a bit of advice and guidance or have their analysis. Could you help them out? And it just, it just all snowballs from there. Um. So it's more like the 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 more decent you are to people, the more likely you are to. If you put out good vibes into the universe,
1: this is maybe said sort of a bit spiritual. They come back at you. Like if I don't believe in karma, but I do know that in the
2: that's true. Like like even in a group of like fifty or sixty people, everybody knows who the jerk is, and um, you know who to avoid, and you know who's going to play ball, and you know because we're little primates and we're we're good at like. Evaluating whether or not someone's going to play fair. So, um, whenever I first uh, had a chat with Alex about her research, uh, I just knew that we would probably get on all right and be able to work together. And um, and so this came up as like a potential a potential thing that we could work on together. Um, and it seemed like an interesting topic as well because we're we're in a strange techno scientific time where. A lot of people don't really value the natural resources that are around them and a lot of people are constrained or limited to an urban environment where the you know, the sum totality of them experiencing nature is I saw a saw fox at mm-hmm. night in a street or that might have been a rat or you know so lit and especially last year with the lockdown, you know, people you you could actually see people were kind of taking advantage of the they change their work hours. They kind of go for walks in parks and things. So it's almost like people crave some kind of connection to nature, mm-hmm. um, and so a lot of a lot of um, academics have theorised about why it is that people love nature, you know, why they become attached to the natural world, why they crave going to the natural world, why some people have a deficit of it, and the kind of effects that a deficit of can a deficit of that uh, contact can actually have. And um, in this we study, what we had was a situation, like a natural experiment, where most kids are in a normal primary school, and there's a subset of primary schools out there that are called uh, 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 nature schools, Um, and they kind of started in, I think it was Finland, somewhere like that, called uh, uh, nature kindergartens, where the kids are actually taught outside for a big chunk of the week. You know, they come in, they put up their little coats, and then they go out into the forest to do their lessons. Um, so we have this weird situation where you have kids in normal environments and kids in nature schools with a greater exposure to nature, and the question is, is does such a does you know
1: would that kind of uh, intervention actually have a stimulating
0: effect on whether or not people felt attached to the natural world? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so it's just a neat, a neat, uh, a neat question.
0: Yeah, because uh, you discussed in the paper how this studies are um, building off. Uh, previous studies um about the the effect of nature in early childhood with uh, attitudes in later life and then you also said that this is the first quantitative study um of this kind. Do you feel that for this field that a quantitative study is more is better at justifying the the, the idea a qualitative assessment is like you ask someone opinion is of a thing, and a quantitative study is you measure some dimension, you, you put some ruler up against what's being, you know, the intervention, and you see whether there's been a, 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 a metricized or a measurable change occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, like, two different ways to evaluate
2: what's going on, and it would always be my opinion that quantitative aspect is the more robust way. Mm-hmm. Why do I say that? I say that because in the last five years or so, we've come to we become aware that data actually matters. So Brexit is a classic example of it. If it wasn't for uh, Cambridge Analytica and their rather canny use of Facebook data, uh, a lot of people would not have voted the way
1: they did. Likewise for elections. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing, knowing data about individuals
2: that can then subsequently predict how, what they're going to do, what they're going to like, how they're going to behave, how they're going to vote, Uh, can have a big impact. Measurements matter. Mm -hmm. Um, The real interesting thing is, uh, so for a lot of these kind of studies, you know, the the instruments that they use, and that's what they call them, instruments, which I've, you know, coming from a life science background, I'm used to like gene sequences and literal rulers to measure things. Um, When you get into this more social side of things, uh, social psychology and Uh, sociology they use uh, uh, questionnaires and instruments to evaluate what's going on so they'll have like an instrument which is like college behavior and it's got a series of questions and how you respond on that puts you on a scale of
1: poor behavior to good behavior and Mm -hmm. these things become validated as well so they can you know even though there's a lot of error in the measurement it's still a better approximation than just asking someone whether or not they're a good student or a bad student Mm-hmm. Um, um and then the other side of it is, is the instruments are
2: trying to measure a thing that is often quite intangible so you know a gene sequence actually corresponds to a gene in your genome but nature connection is more of a nebulous concept that people hold in their mind um and these are slightly you know they're they're harder to measure mm-hmm. they're less um they're less uh, civilized uh, so it's it was actually quite neat to you know, de- delve into a, a completely different discipline with different rules, and mm-hmm. see that the kind of rules that we use to do our experiments are the same over there. It's just the measurement devices are different. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a cool study.
0: Absolutely. Cool. So for you, you had two hypotheses, and your first one was children who attend nature will have a greater nature connection score than those who attend traditional nurseries, and then for this hypothesis, you were measuring both traditional and pre traditional and nature preschool data and yeah. for your second one it was nature connection will differ in time in attendance at nature nurseries and that was for nature nurseries only your paper didn't include a null hypothesis is this standard or did you just choose oh, not to so the null hypothesis is just the opposite of those hypotheses right uh you you when you write a, an article you don't tend to write your null hypotheses mm-hmm.
2: a null hypothesis is a framework in the background of your statistical test against which you check your results but you never actually say you never actually propose a null hypothesis mm-hmm. you propose an alternate hypothesis and then you use the null hypothesis yeah. to either accept or reject and thus support your alternate hypothesis so you probably see
0: that in most articles nobody ever i mean it's assumed that yeah. in null hypothesis testing that's what's actually happening because normally in school and our sorts of university, they encourage you to write a null hypothesis. But when it comes to actual academics, it's just a given like you can you can assume the null hypothesis is basically just the opposite of what you've you've said as your hypothesis.
2: Uh, exactly yeah. uh, well it's the negative version of it the negative a, statement version, of no, yeah. a statement of no effect and I've actually had an interesting conversation with someone about that the other day because they're trying to prove a negative with one of their studies and it doesn't seem to matter what I say to them there's no statistical
1: test to prove a negative Yeah. You can you can reject a negative thing by observing
2: something but you can never prove a negative thing because there's always the potential that you would observe that thing that would actually ultimately reject it it's crazy but the convention that people use is null hypothesis testing it's almost ubiquitous throughout um, all
0: the scientific disciplines yeah because that makes it easier because i feel for me understanding like the p-values didn't really click until i thought to myself it's not the actual hypothesis that you're trying to prove it's you're just trying to disprove the negative so that means that in absence of the null hypothesis it must be the one that you have proposed yeah.
2: yeah that's right um so um when you are contrasting two things you need some kind of metric to say how different they are and we call that metric a test statistic and it's just a mathematical calculation it's like a ratio or it's a it's a gradient or it's just a difference it's some way of measuring difference and the null hypothesis technically is the range of values of that test statistic you might get if there's no effect occurring you know just like roll, like if we just roll the dice what kind of differences would occur um, like roll the dice with your experiment so to speak and then you actually do the experiment you actually calculate the test statistic and then you check where it is on that range of scores and that range of scores is like you know they come about because of sampling error because of measurement error because of just the sensitivity of what you're doing, and it's only when you, then as and you have there are a few assumptions associated with it. It's if you get a really extreme score, you say, well, it's unlikely to be a null. Therefore, I'm going to say I've seen something, but you would never actually conclusively say we've spotted a thing or we've mm-hmm. seen a thing. You just say I'm rejecting my null. Yeah, um, I think it's unlikely. So yeah, it's a it's a strange way to think about it. But the good thing, it's like. People ask, uh, do ask why we do this, and the answer sometimes can be a utilitarian one, like it works. Science has progressed for 150 odd years with this framework of, uh, of falsification. And oddly enough, the science that we have at the moment is probably the best science we've ever had in human civilization ever. So
0: the, the process works, mm-hmm. uh, but it does make mistakes. So absolutely, absolutely. So we'll move on to the experimental method. So you had 251 children from across the UK and you used the Connection to Nature Survey Index for pre- parents of preschool children developed by the University of Hong Kong and Auckland. And within from this study, you chose 16 items. Was that an arbitrary choice or was... So that questionnaire actually went to the parents, not the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: The parents evaluating their kid and the arbitrary nature is something I argue. <laughs> so uh, Alex actually culled the questionnaire a little bit to, I guess, to make it a little bit quicker and a bit more civilized. Um, so it was just, a, I think there was a little bit of arbitrary culling going on there. Um, so we only dropped one or two of the questions. It wasn't anything particularly, particularly substantive.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, ideally, with any um, of these, these psychometrics, you keep everything. Because what when they develop these things they have to do exploratory and confirmatory analysis. So they explore whether or not the questions relate to the thing, this latent variable. Like empathy, you know, do the questions actually relate to empathy in some way, they have some sort of exploratory analysis that then leads to an experiment that confirms this measurement, this thing that we're measuring. You should you really shouldn't drop any in any of the, the things that we're actually working on at the moment.
0: Um, we keep the complete questionnaire in place so for the for the survey uh you had it split up into different categories of enjoyment empathy responsibility and awareness so a certain set of questions from the survey related to each of them which you measured individually and you uh and for this survey like you said you used a parental proxy so they filled it out for them yeah and was this purely for um you know ethical issues of you know you can't ask uh, asking children who couldn't consent to a study was um that was that was the reason was that the reason why you used the parental pro- proxy
2: uh part of the reason for the parental one is because there aren't any there aren't any instruments for kids that young, so you kind of have to use a proxy to measure these things because. There just isn't an instrument for it, mm-hmm. uh, so we used two. Actually, we used um, you, so one of them is definitely the the ethical side of things. You know, you, you, if you're working with kids that young, the parent is going to be
1: present, um, but because there's no instrument, the parent's evaluation of the kid
2: kind of became our metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have a second one, which is this inclusion in nature thing, which is just a pictorial one, which is like, you know, how do you think your kid is? You know, are they totally in nature, or they totally outside nature, and we actually find quite a huge. There was a lot of concordance between the two, but I guess that's to be expected. That that is actually one of the limitations mm-hmm. of the the survey is the fact that we're not directly measuring the kid; we're measuring a proxy. But in lots of scientific studies, you do measure proxies. So, if you're looking at, let's say, the reaction a reaction rate in a spectrophotometer, you're not actually measuring the reaction; you're measuring an indicator. So you're measuring, you know, the amount of iodine in solution. And you're hoping that the iodine in solution is associated with the reaction that you're measuring, right? Mm -hmm. So like, let's say it's degradation of starch. The iodine is associated with starch. And as the starch becomes consumed by the amylase,
1: it then goes into solution. So the purple color of the, you know, the absorbance changes, you know, the absorbance of
2: the solution that you're actually, but what you're not actually doing is looking at molecules reacting.
0: So there's lots of proxies that we use interesting yeah and was there a concern for bias because especially for the nature uni- nature nurseries because you know who sends their kids to nature nurseries of course
2: yeah of course that's a, an obvious source of bias in it um where we're slightly less worried about the uh, biases is that we see the the full range of scores um mm-hmm. but there, there is a slight expectation something that i did raise is that um as you rightly say, you know, people who send their kids to nature schools, you know, the kids are called Tarquin. (laughs) You know, they wear barber jackets and they spend time,
1: you know, glamping. Absolutely. Um, But that said, um,
2: actually, when you look at the kids for the individual dimensions, you know, like, for example, the empathy side of things, the nature school versus the traditional school, you know, the differences are basically zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at the enjoyment in nature, you know, nature nurseries, you know, the kids are, actually have a higher enjoyment value than the, the traditional schools. If you look for uh, something like responsibility, where you might expect kids in nature schools to have a higher responsibility score, they're exactly the same. So the, the if there were biases, you probably would have seen them across the board. Um, so, yeah, um, if there was a bias, I think it would have been a bit more obvious
0: in the data. For the values that you got, you plotted it on a general linear model by normal error distri- distribution, and then you applied the benjamin e. Hotchberg approach to prevent a random p uh, p value p value of below zero point zero five. Is this a standard um, tool that you use when it comes to statistics? Um. It's a standard tool that I use. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
2: so first of all, generalized linear models are best fit lines. So if you've done a best fit line, you've done a generalized linear model. Like if, you, if you've if taken a piece of graph paper with some data points on it and you've plotted a best fit line through the center of it, you've done a linear model. Mm-hmm. It's just your linear model is a linear model with Gaussian errors, like normal errors. Mm-hmm. So if you were to like draw... Anytime you do a hypothesis test, you have a 1 in 20 chance of a false positive. That's pretty it's just, high. It's a, it's intrinsic in the system. If you then do multiple hypothesis tests on the same set of data, you carry that 1 in 20 chance and you compound it. So if I, say, did 100 medical tr- tests on you, each one with a 1 in 20 error rate on it, You're going to get a lot of false positives just because I've done a lot of tests on you, even if you're perfectly healthy. Mm -hmm. So you need a way to correct for that. And the way you correct for that is by uh, either reducing your alpha, so making it lower than 1 in 20, or having some sort of systematic approach like the Benjamin Hockberg, which is you take all of your hypothesis tests, you set a threshold, and then beyond that point, you reject. you just say... These are all false. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, we're we're going to ignore them. We're only going to accept ones that are very, very, very extreme. So the, ultimately, that's what it's doing. It's like saying p-value 0.05 is not good enough here. I need to make my test more stringent,
0: mm-hmm. um, and it's just a way to do that. Oops. That's all. And. so to go so from after you've done all of this you got your results and just looking through the the table without uh, from the values like for all of the different categories you never had a a value lower than 3.73 out of five so they're all like very high um which um which just shows even in traditional schools yeah exactly and and that was in a traditional school so the results that you uh, that you got from this were largely supportive of your high first hypothesis, and also similar to a study conducted in two thousand and thirteen by the RSPB, and yeah, you also true. found that exposure to nature was proportional to the frequency of attendance, which is in support of, uh, your second hypothesis. So there's a very weak dosage effect,
2: whereby over time, like the uh, but it's different between uh someone scoring a four and someone scoring a 4.5 so it's actually quite a weak effect but it's there mm-hmm. it's the difference between being you know five five feet tall and being five feet two inches tall um you know there's no harm in it but it's not like a strong effect it's not like you start off not liking nature and then come out you know hugging a tree mm-hmm. it's the difference between maybe being a bit more empathetic about things being feeling a wee bit more responsible and ultimately so there's a there's a a psychologist called uh, Richard Thaler. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. An economic, uh, he won the uh, Nobel Prize for economics because of a theory called nudge theory. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with where yeah. So you get the idea. You don't technically need to change the world. You just need to get everyone to do a millimeter more of a thing. Like if you can get everyone to pick up one piece of litter, the country would have no litter if you can get everyone to just smile at one person during the day, everybody would be happier. You know, it's a small nudge that makes a big difference. And with these sort of things, you know, whenever you see that, you know, even just going like once a year on a field trip or a couple of times a year to like the beach, it has a profound effect on how people view nature. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need big changes. You just need little nudges to -hmm. make a big difference. I think that's one of the problems that we actually have today is a lot of people are, um, they're activists. They don't want small, they don't want small incremental changes. They want profound structural changes to the world Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and profound structural changes like revolutions. They don't last, but small changes like, you know, so these are the kind of like, you know, you make like small changes to the way people behave
1: and all of a sudden you've got no litter on the streets really worth talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the kind of thing that this study kind of showed is that you know a little
0: bit of nature schooling a little bit of exposure to nature can actually make you more connected to it well that's a great note to leave leave it on uh yeah thank you thank you so much for for joining us today